There's nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. Greetings and welcome again from an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, economyofone.com. And economyofone.com, as is our Facebook, economy of one on Facebook. You got a comment or question, don't hesitate to go there and ship it in to me and I'll see what I can do with it. Uh, Yeah, it's been an interesting week. And I guess the big news that uh, I need to mention is the Federal Reserve raising interest rates a quarter of a point. I've said before, it wasn't the raising of the interest rates that is necessarily important at this point. It's a commentary that Janet Yellen has when she talks about raising interest rates. In other words, the market's more interested in the anticipation for the next several months than what she actually did on Wednesday. So going up a quarter of a point, it was building the market. The market was expecting that. But the market was also expecting more of a hawkish commentary. And what they got was a dubbish commentary. So the market reacted uh, appropriately, meaning... It took a serious jump after the rate increase. Not quite, I think, what the Federal Reserve had in mind when they wanted to raise interest rates. Now, let's step back a couple uh, steps here and talk about interest rates in general. We've talked about this before, but it's always good to, to review. And that is that when the interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down. The, the, the principal value of bonds go down. It works like a teeter-totter with interest rates on one side and the value of bonds on the other. So as she raises interest rates, the value of the bonds go down. How much they go down, the, the, the amplitude of the decline, uh, is heavily influenced by the length the bond has left to maturity. So if interest rates go up a fourth of a percent, a 30-year bond will go down in value more than a 20-year, more than a 10-year, and a 10-year will go down more than a one, two, or three-year. So in a rising interest rate environment, if you're anticipating interest rates to rise, which we are, you want to keep your bond maturities fairly short, meaning one, two, or three years. They'll still take a hit because that side of the teeter-totter will still go down, just not as far, and it won't take as long to reach equilibrium. The other thing to keep in mind on interest rates is that it's, it's a money tightening, meaning credit 
is more expensive today than it was before she raised interest rates. And as credit is more expensive, people are less likely to spend. Now, we've anticipated this 25 basis point increase for quite some time. So it wasn't a shock. It wasn't a shock. But that doesn't mean it still doesn't have the effect of tightening. Mortgage rates will will go up a fourth of a percent. Variable rates will go up. Uh, working capital lines for businesses will go up. Everything just got more expensive if you use credit. I guess one of the biggest creditors out there you got to keep in mind is the federal government. With $20 trillion of debt, 25 basis point increase is equivalent to about a $50 billion increase in expense, interest expense. So the government just just committed to a lot more interest money. Now, it doesn't matter because they don't pay principal or interest anyway. They just keep rolling it forward and rolling it forward. But uh, we're reaching that, that critical point on our debt when a major part of the budget in the very new future will be to pay interest on the national debt. Now, the market took an increase on Thursday after, or I'm sorry, on Wednesday after the uh, Fed announced. And it gave some back on Thursday. The reason being is that the market heard the commentary from Janet Yellen and decided that her commentary was stay the course, things are moving steadily, stay the course. And like I said before, I don't think that's what the Federal Reserve meant to convey. I think the Federal Reserve wanted the stock market to get a more hawkish single uh, signal and then maybe pull back. And it didn't do that right away. So what's going to happen uh, in the weeks and months ahead with the Federal Reserve? Well, what's going to happen is, is several fold. One, they're going to change their tune, meaning the governors that, that make speeches and and uh, publish articles, including interviews and, and press conferences and media and stuff, talking to uh, Janet Yellen, is she's going to be more hawkish. She's going to be more aggressive in uh, talking about tightening the money supply. The other thing I think is going to happen is we're, we're, we're probably going to get two more 25 basis point increases by the end of the year. Now, I've read commentary both ways that she'll raise again in June and probably again in September. I think it's likely she'll raise in September. And uh, I'm not sure on the June, whether it'll be June or December. The other thing that's likely to happen is they're going to get uh, they're going to start floating the commentary out there about shrinking the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. They got about four and a half trillion dollars of government securities through quantitative easing. Remember that term, uh, Operation Twist, all that kind of stuff. But they they bought 
trillions of dollars of debt from the government, from the Treasury, and just put it on their their balance sheet. Eventually, they gotta they gotta shrink that balance sheet. Eventually, they got to start taking those bonds that mature and essentially retiring the cash and letting the treasury get their financing from somewhere else, as they are now. Now that that could could have a a fairly big psychological effect on the market. But from a practical standpoint, I really don't think it's too big of a deal right now, especially with interest rates on the increase, meaning it's going to be more expensive for the government to issue debt, but the interest that buyers earn by buying the debt just went up. And if you want to incentivize someone to buy your bonds, Raising the interest rate's an excellent way to do it. So by raising the interest rate, they they made the bonds more attractive. Now, something else that happened is the dollar will eventually get stronger on the international market. Once again, it's, it's, it's people looking at their own currency, looking at the exchange rate to change it into dollars, and then looking at the interest rate they can earn on those dollars compared to other places. The 10-year bond in Germany is less than 1%. The 10-year bond in the United States, I'm talking government bonds, uh, is closer to 25 Doesn't take a real sharp pencil to figure out you can make more money investing in American 10-year bonds than you can investing in German 10-year bonds. Now you got to consider the the uh, exchange rate, what it, what it costs to to translate euros into dollars before you you buy American debt with those dollars. But that's all math. You can do that, and indeed these countries do do that all day, every day. But uh, serious ramifications by raising the interest rates, even though this is exactly what we anticipated. I think the Fed was caught off guard a little bit because just three weeks ago, the market, the economy, the, the investors in, in, in uh, the world felt that the odds of raising interest rates in uh, March was only 30%. It wasn't until the last week or so that the odds shot up to 100%. So the, the, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate, low unemployment, and 2% or less inflation. Now, the inflation numbers are skewed. You and I both know that, but... Uh, They're consistently skewed in the same way, so it gives us an indication of direction. So we know where they're trending, even though the actual numbers um, probably are not accurate and don't really apply to you and I. When you carve out food and energy, you kind of screw up the whole idea of 
inflation numbers. But interesting correlation this week between the Federal Reserve raising interest rates as expected and how the market reacted and what we're going to see over the next 60 or 90 days. We'll keep you up to date. It'll be interesting. Coming up next, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, one of my favorites. We'll talk to Dr. Arn next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dr. Larry Arn. He's the president of Hillsdale College, where he's also a professor of politics and history. Dr. Arn is the past president of the Claremont Institute for the Study of Statesmanship and Political Philosophy and the founding chairman of the California Civil Rights Initiative, which prohibited racial preferences in state hiring, contracting, and admissions. He's the author of several books, including his latest, Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill, and the Salvation of Free Government. Dr. Arn, welcome to An Economy of One. Great to be here with you, sir. I appreciate it. You know, Hillsdale College, near and dear to my heart, uh, we're home-based in Toledo, Ohio, so you're just down the road from us. We're neighbors. Yes, and uh, uh, I went to Adrian College, which is just down the road from Hillsdale, Excellent sort of. College, a rival for second best. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, and you know, back in the day, that was back in the '70s. It was a little bit, a little bit different back then. But I'm glad you could join me for a few minutes today. I want to talk a little bit because, since uh, President Trump has become president, a lot of the narrative, a lot of the conversation has been around getting back to the constitutional principles. And you spoke a little bit about that this morning, about getting back to the conservative principles, the Constitution. First of all, tell us a little bit how far we've strayed away from the Constitution, and then how President Trump is is going to slide us back. Well, the Constitution is the document by which we all get to participate in governing, and it's the only law the American people have ever passed. So it's a very important thing. And what it sets up is a system in which the society is very big and has all the power, and the government is smaller and does all of the actual governing. And so it's a process of delegation from the big to the small. Well, the government now controls more than 50% of the economy. Mm-hmm. And most of the laws are not even made in popularly elected branches anymore. In fact, a tenth or a hundredth, I don't know, it's a very small percentage. Most are made in exec- bureaucratic agencies, too numerous to count, that also enforce them and also hear as judges the disputes that come under these regulations they make. And I don't think that's constitutionalism and it certainly isn't separation of powers. And so the way to fix that is to curtail those agencies and make Congress once again responsible for the laws that we live under. You know, one of the things I I wanted to make sure I, I asked you and get your opinion on and something that bothers me on a daily basis and that's the difference between an entitlement, uh, perceived entitlement, and a right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, rights to me are very, very clear. It's very clear what the Bill of Rights means to me. It, it doesn't give me rights. It protects my rights that I already have as a natural human being. Are we ever going to get back to the point where everything that somebody wants isn't defined as a right? 
Yeah, it's, uh, that's such an important distinction. And uh, so Madison says that a right is anything to which a person may attach a value and have a right, leaving to everyone else the like advantage. And that means freedom of speech, right? We can all talk all we want. Freedom of worship. We can all worship all we want. Everybody can do it all at the same time. Doesn't take anything from anybody else. Whereas your right to your property, if your property is defined as the things that you have earned and built or have been given to you by others who, who have, then we can all have all of that we want. But entitlement means you get something that costs a lot of money and therefore somebody else got to pay for it. Right. And that sets up a conflict in the society over that money, whereas rights, in their original meaning, sets up harmony. We can all cooperate. We don't have to take anything from each other. That always comes up in the, the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare. Health care is a right. Well, maybe important, but it's not necessarily a right. It can't be. If, you, if you're forcing doctors to treat people and forcing us taxpayers to pay for I, it. I'm in the education business. And so if you teach, I teach every term for 17 years now, if you teach, you won't believe for 15 minutes in the right to an education. And the reason is, if they're not working really hard, they, each student, they're not learning. They have to get it, right? right? And right. what you know is not dispositive. They, they have to want to know. And, you know, at the end of the term, you go to Hillsdale College, all the kids look like the walking dead. They've got dark circles under their eyes. <laughs> They're working hard to learn, you know. And that, 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 that means that that's not like freedom of worship. Right. You know, you can do it. Everybody can do it all the time, right? So that's the point. You can't give that to somebody. And that's, you know, that's, it's dangerous because once you set up rights to mean these entitlements, then, of course, you're going to need an unlimited government to pass all the wealth around. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, an institution near and dear to my heart just down the road. Uh, Dr. Arn, this has been a real privilege for me. I really appreciate it. And looking forward to uh, your next book. I'm Thanks sure there's something too, on the drawing board. Yeah. So, Thank you so much for joining us today. Gary Rathbun, An Economy of One. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is John Tamney. He's a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation, editor of RealClearMarkets.com. He's a political economy editor at Forbes. And his first book that I, I read, it was called Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James Can Teach You About Economics. And most recently, uh, his, his new book, Who, Who Needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and robots can end the biggest bank in the world. John, welcome back to An Economy of One. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me back. Oh, I, I, I enjoy talking to you. I got to tell you, before we get started, my producer, Katie, told me, make sure you tell John this story. And I read one of your columns, and I want to talk about it, about uh, entrepreneurs, where you talked about Phil Knight. And I got asked to speak to a couple uh, high school classes today in one of our more elite schools here in Toledo. And 
I used your whole article. I told the whole story, and and uh, uh, the the kids were very very responsive. They loved the story. They didn't know who Phil Knight was, but half of them were wearing Nike shoes. So it uh, <laughs> it, it was a great story. So I appreciate all your writings, and and uh, I do try to read everything you put out, including your books. Uh, terrific books. I think I referred to you, and I meant it as a compliment. I hope you took it that way, as the Henry Hazlitt of our time. So uh, <laughs> good, good stuff out there. So. Ah, you, the, the, where do I begin? <laughs> Henry Hazlitt is is a hero of mine. I read his book at least once a year. Economics yep. in one lesson. It's essential. And then I'm so glad to hear that you talked about the Phil Knight story. Interestingly enough, I've got a full review of the book coming out tomorrow. What a remarkable man. What a remarkable story of what it takes to succeed, and people see the rich, they see the rich people, they don't realize the sacrifices they go to, the fights they go through mm-hmm. to find the capital to fund their brilliant ideas. I'm so glad you're spreading what is an essential story around, and I hope everyone buys Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, after they buy my my two books. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I, I bought your book, uh, Popular Economics, I bought that for my staff. Uh, I bought Henry Hazlitt's book for my staff. Uh, I just think it's important to have that foundation, but it, it's funny because I asked these kids. Now these are seniors, and they were at the uh, Toledo Technology Academy, so the, these are smart, smart, smart kids. And I asked them. I said, "When I say the word Wall Street, what do you guys think of? Do you think of elitist uh, intellectuals, greedy people that take advantage of everybody?" And every hand went up. Every hand went up. And then I told them Phil Knight's story and and uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and. I said, everything that that you touch today is because of an investment banker taking a risk and raising some capital and having these companies provide the liquidity and go uh, go public. And at the end, I think they had a different view of, of Wall Street, but that that's become a almost a, an insult to to say you're part of Wall Street. And I think people just don't understand, do they? I think you're right, and and I'm so glad you're spreading this story. Wall Street is not a bunch of evil people. Now, maybe not everyone there is nice. Who knows? But not everyone's nice in business. Not everyone's nice at nonprofits. What Wall Street does is find finance for these companies that we could not live without. If it weren't for Wall Street finding finance for and taking public Nike, Apple, Microsoft, you name it, Think about the unrelenting lives of drudgery we'd lead. And let's remember, Nike wasn't a sure thing when it went when Wall Street took it public in 1980. Uh, neither was Apple. Neither was Microsoft. But look at how they've transformed our lives. Wall Street finds finance for the companies that most aren't taken seriously. And, and, and we, we, we trash it at our peril. We don't want a world without these brilliant financiers seeding the companies that transform our lives. It's funny because all these kids were following uh, the IPO of Snapchat. And uh, so they asked me a lot of questions about Snapchat. And I said, you know, Snapchat raised a lot of money. Uh, the investment bankers got $100 million or so uh, to raise that money for them a couple of weeks ago. Do you feel the investment bankers were overpaid? And I kind of, you know, they knew I was setting them up, but I still got kind of a few nods. But they don't understand going public is not something we decide to do on Tuesday and we go public on Friday. 
I mean, this is a three-year process that these investment bankers have to go through and all the filings and all the, and they do all of that in anticipation of, of a successful launch. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I think figure that you and I are, are only telling part of the story. Mm-hmm. What's going to be interesting is at some point, uh, Evan Spiegel, the founder of Snapchat, is going to write a book, I assume. And he's going to talk about the hundreds, the thousands of people who rejected his idea. Right. And so we always hear about, oh, well, you know, but Wall Street took public web van and that makes it bad. Of course, that's the point. Wall Street finds finance for all sorts of companies. When you look back a little over 100 years ago, and Toledo knows this well, the advent of the automobile, Mm. lots of companies were incorporated. Most of them didn't succeed in the auto space, but we don't want to live in a world without cars. 100 years later, Wall Street found finance for all sorts of technological companies. A lot of them failed, too. That's a sign of progress. What an awful world we'd have without the Internet. And Snapchat is just the next step in what is constantly changing. But Evan Spiegel ran into all sorts of barriers to get to this point, to get to the billionaire status. And that's what we've got to keep reminding people about how important finance is to the world we want to live in. Well, and I I reminded these kids, I said, think of your iPhone. All of them have cellular phones. I said, think of your phones, think of your computers. They all had these little little surface computers, you know, that, that uh, have a million gig in them and stuff. I said, think of what all this would be if we relied on the government to provide it. You know, <laughs> your, your, your cell phone would be, you know, the World War II communications guy. It'd weigh 50 pounds in a backpack, you know, and uh, the shoes would be made out of cardboard or something, you know. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that, that we plant a few seeds in these young people because, you know, we're, we're going to be dependent on them in our old age. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I do believe because of people like you, and, and I just think because uh, young people want to get married and have good lives themselves, mm-hmm. they're going to be wildly successful, this generation you're talking to. But it, it's so important for them to be reminded that, you know, the, the cell phone sitting in their pocket would have cost millions and would have been described as a supercomputer, yep. not eight to ten years ago, assuming they had the technology to make it. Um, we, you and I well know the first cell phone was brick-sized. It had a half-hour battery life. It cost $4,000. Yeah. The first computer from IBM in the 1960s filled a massive room, and it cost over a million dollars. These entrepreneurs uh, financed by Wall Street utterly changed how we live and the access that young kids have to information today and lifestyles that – previous generations of the richest people in the world wouldn't have dreamed of is amazing. And we've got to remember where it comes from, and thank goodness you're telling them. You know, that reminds me, I want to switch gears a little bit, because I read a a Forbes article that you published just recently, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, uh, Nicholas uh, Eberstadt, is that how you pronounce it? I think so. (laughs) Okay. You know, I'm terrible with that kind of stuff. But, you know, the, the thing we forget is, uh, maybe Bill Gates got rich. Maybe Steve Jobs got got rich. These guys got stinky rich. Maybe their investment bankers got stinky rich. But it has raised the level of wealth and lifestyle for everybody. I mean, I, I think we forget that, you know, they're, they're the ones bringing up the tide and all of the boats are rising. I mean, we're all all better off because of these investment bankers financing these guys. 
Absolutely. And, and, and again, uh, Eberstadt fully missed the point. He said, oh, you know, we elites in these elite cities didn't see the Donald Trump phenomenon happening. We don't understand people in, in, in the middle parts of the country. And I mm-hmm. thought, what an arrogant thing to say to and indict these alleged coastal elites for missing. And, and my point is Silicon Valley is full of wealth. Precisely because the people there have intent, have anticipated the needs of those not rich for decades. Wall Street has gotten rich because it finds finance for the companies of Main Street, not just in Silicon Valley, but around the country. Hollywood, we always want to knock Hollywood, and yes, it's full of liberal lefties who have lots of money, but they get rich out there by anticipating the needs of, of people in Peoria, not in Pasadena. And, and right. I just think this desire to indict the, the coastals as somehow bad people, when in fact they understand the needs of the country probably better than anyone. That's why they're rich. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, the, the other thing I pointed out, um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but I, I'm doing a bunch of research on Bitcoin and blockchain and that kind of stuff. And IBM uh, had a couple of guys apparently didn't have enough to do, and they decided to create their own digital currency called BlueCoin. And in studying Bitcoin to create BlueCoin, they found out that there's all kinds of applications for a blockchain. And now they have over 700 of their customers or clients uh, that are paying IBM to put together blockchain for their business has nothing to do with digital currency, but you never know what peripheral or ancillary products are going to come out of financing these entrepreneurs. I mean, it's always something unexpected. It's so important that you say that, um, we always hear about Google. What we don't hear about are the thousands of would-be Googles that never made it. Right. And uh, economic growth isn't driven by success. If it were driven by success, Silicon Valley would be poor. It's just about everything out there fails. Right. Right. Economic growth is driven by information, and that's what you're describing, this constant experimentation with new ideas. Uh, Phil Knight's story is interesting in that he had some odd guy come to him one day and say, what about putting air bubbles in your shoes to make running easier and, and, and help jumping and everything. And he looked at the guy and said, are you kidding me? Well, the Nike air transformed things. And so right. you think about this, we have to be experimenting to be evolving and failing. Thomas Edison failed constantly. Well, you can't fail without capital, without investment, without funds. And so when we tax businesses and tax investors, we're taxing away the very information that makes our lives better and better each day. Absolutely. We're speaking with John Tamney, Senior Fellow in Economics at the Reason Foundation. Uh, Look him up. He writes all over, but his books are fantastic. Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James can teach you about economics. And most recently, Who Needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots can end the biggest bank in the world. Uh, John, before I let you go, this is purely for my own edification, but I was able to uh, uh, interview a a lady by the name of Danielle DiMartino Booth. She wrote a book called Fed Up. I don't know if you've heard of her, Uh, but she was an insider uh, doing research for uh, one of the uh, uh, Fed governors in Texas. And she had a great line in her book. I thought you would appreciate this. She's talking about, uh, uh, economists and, you know, the Federal Reserve 
uh, is the largest employer of economic PhDs in the world. And she had the comment that uh, uh, an economic PhD at the Federal Reserve is like a guy who knows how to make love 364 different ways but doesn't know any women. And, <laughs> and, and I, I knew you was coming up on an interview, and I said, ah, i got to share that with John because, you know, these, these guys that are making policy, setting interest rates, they've never had to make payroll. They've never created anything. They've never failed. They've never you know, had their hat in the hand talking to a banker about surviving tomorrow, anything like that. So uh, your books, I, I just love them, John. They're, they're very practical, very readable, and they relate to things that are, are going on in our world today and in our lives today. So I wish we had more time, but I really appreciate your time and uh, love talking to you and can't wait to, to impose upon you again soon. Anytime, Gary. Thank you very much for having me on for all that you've done for me. I look forward to coming back soon. Very good. Thanks, John. You have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, an interesting thing happened in the last couple of weeks that I think it'd be good to talk about, and that is Snapchat went public. Now, companies go IPO, initial public offering, quite often. But I thought Snapchat gave us a good example of something to look at, something to watch out for on initial public offerings. When a company goes public, they go public for several reasons, not the least of which is to essentially provide liquidity, to raise capital for the company to expand and get into other fields or develop their current products or fields. A company like Snapchat, now, Snapchat is after my time. I'm not a Snapchat person. I've never used Snapchat. It's one of those things that I'm not quite sure how they make money. I mean, I know how they make money, but to me, it's not a real reliable source of making money. And it illustrates how a company it can be driven, especially initially, by emotion. So Snapchat opened up at 17. They went public at 17. And within a very short time, they were up to 29. And since that time, over the last week or so, it has pulled back, clear back to low 20s or uh, uh, high teens. So we've seen that emotion affect the stock. People were very anxious to get it. Now, who was anxious to buy it? Vast majority of the investors were millennials. And it makes sense because that's their generation. That's the generation that uses that kind of technology. You and I don't really use that. I'm not a Snapchat person. I'm not a Twitter person. I'm, I'm not even much of a text person. I, I like personal interaction. So it wasn't something I was interested in. But many millennials got into it, and they are essentially underwater at this point. 
Uh, the average price they got into it was uh, in the 26 range. It went up to 29 or so, and now it's it's pulled back significantly to uh, the low 20s. So the point I'm making here is that when it comes to IPOs, very, very few people get the IPO price. They set the price for the IPO, but generally speaking, all the shares are pre-subscribed at that price. So when it opens, when it when the bell rings and they 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 go public, you're not going to buy it at 17 or at the the opening price. To me, the thing to do when I look at an IPO, if there's an IPO that I want to get involved in, I will wait. If I can't get in on the pre-subscription, which is very, very hard to do and very rare, if I can't get in, I will wait days, weeks, maybe even months before I get into the stock. I wait for reality to set into the market and the emotion to get bled out. I've seen this in 36 years of doing this. I've seen this over and over and over and over where the initial enthusiasm drives the price way up and within a very short period of time, reality sets in and the price gets back down to a true or truer evaluation of the underlying company. Ultimately, a price of a stock is directly related to its earnings. Let's switch gears on you for just a second here. This week, I was published in American Thinker. If uh, you go to our website at economyofone.com, go to our Facebook page, you'll find the link to my article. And I commented on the uh, young man that was made fun of when he attended CPAC for his haircut, and it later came out that he had stage four brain cancer and and that kind of stuff. But my point for the column was, why is this funny to begin with? Why is it funny and then not funny when we find out he has cancer? And then we apologized. The comedian apologized by Twitter, by the way, which is the sincerest form of apology. So take a look at my article. It's called, Why Was This Supposed to Be Funny? And... Give me your thoughts on that. I'd appreciate them. But go to our website, economyofone.com, and get the link to American Thinker for my column this week. Hope you enjoy it. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is the views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.